From coast to coast to coast, you are listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Amanda Rooney, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. In light of Canada Day, we'll be visiting our archives to remember the voices of two powerful and renowned Canadian women environmentalists. First up is Severn Cullis Suzuki, filmmaker, TV host, ethnoecologist, activist, and of course, the daughter of David Suzuki. Second up is Maud Barlow, chairperson of the Council of Canadians and a prolific author particularly concerned with the use, abuse, and future of water. But before all that, here are some environmental news headlines. Last year, we saw wildfires put British Columbia in a state of emergency for 10 weeks, prompting thousands of people to evacuate their homes. Now, BC is reporting that there are 10 times more wildfires burning in the province than there were at the same time last year. While officials say that they can't predict how this year's fire season will play out, scientists are warning that what we saw last summer could be a new normal as climate change leads to hotter, drier conditions and a higher risk of fires. But in more positive news, a young North Pacific right whale was spotted off the coast of British Columbia this month. The sighting was only the third since 2013. Before then, no one had seen a right whale in Canadian waters since 1951. The right whale was hunted by whalers for its large size, slow movements, and the way it would float on the surface after being killed. Their population was decimated, and by the time whaling was regulated in 1946, they had been almost completely eradicated from Canadian waters. Now scientists are trying to figure out whether the right whale population is bouncing back or whether the remaining whales have just become more visible. The researchers will be installing hydrophones in the waters of Haida Gwaii to record the sounds of passing whales 24 hours a day. With this data, they hope to figure out whether there are in fact more right whales in Canadian waters. If you're interested in learning more about right whales, Visit our website at terrainforma.ca and search right whales in the search bar. Last summer, I spoke with Sean Brion, the Canadian Wildlife Federation's senior conservation biologist, about the issues facing right whale populations in Canada. In the United States, 28-year-old Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has won the Democratic primary in the New York district, encompassing Queens and the Bronx after defeating the influential incumbent Joe Crowley. Ocasio-Cortez is a Democratic socialist whose platform includes an ambitious proposal on climate change to transition the United States to 100% renewable energy by 2035. This is a goal that many environmental scientists believe is our only hope to stop the worst effects of climate change. Ocasio-Cortez calls her plan the Green New Deal, harking back to President Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s, which was designed to lead America out of the Depression. 
Ocasio-Cortez plans for her new deal to invest trillions of dollars into creating millions of high-wage jobs in the energy transition. She has suggested that hurricane-ravaged Puerto Rico could be the right testing grounds for the plan. Ocasio-Cortez is likely to win the riding in the general election, as the working-class area has been a Democratic stronghold. If you thought herding cats sounded like hard work, try herding fish. A new study published in Science Magazine states that fish species of commercial importance, like salmon, are changing their migration patterns with changing climate. When the fish populations change their migration routes across international boundaries, it's impossible to tell which aquatic resource is allocated to each country. The study states that fish territories are shifting at a rate of 43 miles per decade. The removal or addition of a fish species from an area also affects the rest of the food web. The fate and management of global fish stocks is becoming increasingly interdisciplinary and will require combined work of law and science. A committee that had proposed the cleanup of toxic pulp fiber patch in the North Harbor of Thunder Bay is expected to be reconvened. The committee, which first presented options for cleanup in 2014, was disbanded after no option could be selected and no organization was selected to lead the project. The costs of cleanup estimated in 2014 ranged from 30 million to 90 million. The companies responsible for the pollution no longer exist. While a project lead has still yet to be selected, the new committee is looking to involve the city of Thunder Bay as well as local landowners. That's it for headlines, and now on to this week's stories. We dug into the archives this Canada Day episode to find past interviews with inspiring Canadian women renowned for their environmental work. Though Tara Informers spoke with Severne Kalasuzuki and Maud Barlow years ago, their words are still relevant today. First, we hear from Severne Kalasuzuki, daughter of David Suzuki and an environmental activist who has worked tirelessly writing books, hosting TV shows, and radio programming. When she was 12 years old, Severne delivered a famous speech that silenced the world for six minutes at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. You can watch that speech on YouTube, but for now, here's Tara Informers, Trevor Chow Fraser, and Natalie Rawat, speaking with Severne Cullis Suzuki 22 years after she made that speech. 22 years ago, a 12-year-old girl from Canada and a group of her friends traveled to Brazil for the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. Severne Cullis Suzuki was that girl, and the speech she delivered at what is known as the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development is better known as the girl who silenced the world for five minutes. Today, Suzuki has not only followed on the path of environmental activism, but travels the world in hopes of engaging more people in the conversation about sustainability for future generations. Trevor Chow Fraser and I spoke to Severn about her life today with her husband and two children in Haidakwai, British Columbia, as well as a Suzuki legacy that she continues to strengthen in Canada and around the world. I live on Haida Gwaii. It's an archipelago off the west coast of BC. I live with um, my husband and my two kids, and we live in my husband's village of Skidigit, and it's a Haida community. It's a, it's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful village community. It's like a big family. We live where, in, in the same village where Judd grew up, my husband, 
and we gather food all year round. We live um, live off of the land and the sea. Um, we're gonna we're building a garden, so that's that will really help us not need to buy as many vegetables because that's mostly what we all we have to buy in the grocery store is vegetables and rice and and um, and harvesting our own food is really an incredible way of being close to the earth and understanding how interconnected we fundamentally are. And that is a, a very deep spiritual connection of the Haida people to the earth and ocean especially. And I've been learning that since I was a very young child, since I was six years old, I've been going to Haida Gwaii and eventually that's how I met my husband as my family was visiting um, the Haida community. And um, it's just been a, an incredible, strength to me, especially in the environmental work I've been doing. And uh, I'm also learning the Haida language. As soon as I moved to the community, before my children were born, I, I started working with elders to, to learn this endangered language. There's only a handful of elders that still speak it. And um, I, 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 I'm very passionate about keeping those traditions going because they are enjoyable <laughs> and they're sustainable. What do you want your legacy to be? That's a big question. Right now, I'm a, a still relatively new mother. I have two little kids. And so when I think about what I can do for their future, the first thing I think of and the thing that makes me feel um, like it's a real answer is to get my kids connected to the land and connected to gathering their own food, to understanding their connection to the earth, and also their connection to their culture, and also their connection and responsibility to the greater world. And so even though we live in the small community, I often bring them to Vancouver, and they've already traveled all over the world. Um, my son, when he was five months old, he came with me to Rio Plus 20, and I, I want them to be global citizens through their experience, and I feel that through living by example, living with them, showing, showing them, that will be the strongest connection that they will have to that responsibility and to that identity which will support them. How do you feel about your family's legacy? You mean my father and mother's legacy? Well, that's an interesting question. When I was in elementary school, my parents started the David Suzuki Foundation. And this was founded because my father, who'd been doing environmental work already for quite some time, he kept getting all this correspondence from Canadians and people all over the world saying, okay, I, I get it. The earth is in trouble. What, am, what can I do? And he realized he couldn't just keep raising the alarm without investing in finding solutions. And so my mother really took it upon herself and the two of them founded this organization along with many First Nations friends and environmental thinkers um, for, in Canada. And they've built this incredible institution. And it's just been an incredible mentoring for me to see what two individuals can do. It's just incredible. So I, I think that that attitude of just rolling up your sleeves and figuring out what you need to do has really been imparted on me because in the challenges that are coming, that we that are already here, we are going to have to adopt that attitude because it's it's really up to no one else but ourselves. I just wanted to ask, um, so your father has always been a bit of a hero for me, part, partly because he's Asian, 
and I'm part Asian. My mom's Chinese. So it was nice to have an Asian Canadian who was recognized as you know, the greatest Canadian alive by the whole country, as well as a scientist and a broadcaster and all, all the other things as well. Um, so I'm just wondering, how do you see that identity and what, what does it bring to your activism? I think that that is a fantastic question. And I think about this a lot. I think that the success of David Suzuki, and in success, I don't mean like uh, fame in this kind of classic sense, but I think his success in people relating to him, and you can see that in, yeah, these like um, Reader's Digest polls where he's consistently the most trusted Canadian. I think that has roots in the fact that he is of, uh, well, I don't even know what the correct term is. I mean, I want to say a person of color. I mean, he represents the other. And, you know, traditionally, the environmental movement has been a movement that comes from, you know, middle-class white men. And so to suddenly have someone who is not, you know, does not have that face speaks to a whole different section of Canadian society and American, in fact, the world. But in North America, it is, you know, amazing that so many people in the street will recognize him. And then on top of that, the fact that he has a scientific background. I think that those two things have, be, have hugely contributed to the fact that he's consistently trusted. So I think, I think that's really important. He also has been always so interested and influenced by First Nations Aboriginal cultures in Canada and has always come with such a attitude of respect and it's been completely reciprocated and he's learned so much and it's shaped his understanding of our challenges with the planet it's you know completely this in turn has completely influenced me to the point where you know we I grew up spending so much time in Haida Gwaii I eventually got married to a guy from there I mean it's had all these reverberations and really speaks to all of these issues that are so embedded in the Canadian identity and that is why he is, you know, number one trusted person. And I guess that's why I am, you know, really of the school that all of these issues are interconnected because ultimately if we understand that, then ultimately we all will be involved because we will realize how engaged we are inherently. This is Tara Informa, and that was a piece from our archives when Trevor Chow Fraser and Natalie Rawat spoke to environmental and indigenous rights activist Severn Cullis Suzuki. One of the first names that comes to my mind when I think about water sustainability in Canada is Maude Barlow. Chairperson for the Council of Canadians and prolific author, Maude Barlow spoke with Tara Informer Matt Hergy in 2013 while she was on a book tour for Blue Planet, a book combining the murky depths of resource wars, privatization, and other contentious issues of water security. Okay, my name is Maud Barlow and I'm the National Chairperson of the Council of Canadians. Well, Maud Barlow says that water is the blood of the earth. And noting the significance of water, Barlow has tirelessly advocated for water sustainability for over 10 years. She has fought to change people's perception around H2O, urging them to think about water as a right and not a commodity. In 2009, she served as senior advisor on water to the 63rd President of the United Nations General Assembly and was a leader in the campaign to have water recognized as a human right 
by the United Nations. She is also the author of many reports and several books focused on water sustainability. On October 10th, 2013, Maud Barlow arrived at the University of Alberta to speak about her newest book, Blue Future, protecting water for people and the planet forever. Well, we're in deep trouble as a planet. Um, you know, it obviously it depends on where you live, and it's still very hard in, in Canada to get people to understand the crisis globally. A colleague calls it the, 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 the reality of modern water, and that is that in the West and in the, you know, in the more um, urban areas, more um, certainly in uh, neoliberal capitalist world, we see water as being a resource for our pleasure, profit, and convenience, and we don't see it as the essential element of a living ecosystem. I am really worried about the displacement of uh, indigenous people, communities, villages, peasants, and so on around the world for modern water projects um, in India for free trade zones. You know, millions of people being displaced in China. They're building. They want. They want the rural communities gone. They're pulling people into cities. They have these ghost cities. They built these cities so fast and so big that they're great big cities that don't have any people in them. And they're just displacing people. The land grabs. There's a land grab, which is also always a water grab in Africa now, this three times, times the size of Great Britain. And this is where private corporations or wealthy countries come in and they actually buy up the land and the water uh, for profit or, or to feed their people. And they're displacing the very people who know how to live with drought, who know how to live with cyclical climates, who know how to, to dry land farm. And what they're doing is they're pulling up, again, aquifer water, and they're building these big chemical-based industrial farms, just the opposite of what we need. So that, if I would say the thing I'm most concerned about is that I think that where governments were making decisions around dwindling water resources to put it to economic development and growth or for, for people's livelihoods and people's lives. And I'm afraid we're already seeing that, that that's happened. In your newest book, uh, which is the final end of the trilogy, uh, uh, you, uh, in, as the title would suggest, you look to the future of water sustainability. And I guess the philosophical leaps that we'll have to take in order to get to a place where water is, again, sustainable, what will it take for us to make those philosophical leaps in thinking about water? Well, people are just going to have to come to grips with the fact that, you know, just like those comet movies in Hollywood, where there's a comet coming at the Earth and all of a sudden nothing really matters because the Earth's going to blow up in 72 hours. We have a comet coming at us. It's called the global water crisis, and it's not here yet in Canada in a visible way, although I would argue it is here in Alberta, and it's certainly here in other parts of the country. But it is here in the world. I mean, China, since 1990, half the rivers in China are gone. Gone. I'm not saying polluted. They're also, they were polluted. They're gone. So we need to get our heads around what this means. How are people going to live? Who's, you know, who's going to be sacrificed in this world? So I guess what I'm hoping people can do is, to, is that we can build the kind of um, movement around this that we built around climate, where people really understand that it's life and death. And this, this is a climate issue. This is very much, I mean, the way we abuse and displace water is one of the causes of climate crisis. And restoring watersheds is one of the solutions. Um, but I can't make people care. You know, a lot of people just, it's like, you know, when the tap, when I turn the tap on and the water doesn't come out of my tap, then I'll be upset. But until then, 
you know, some technology will fix it. Somebody's looking at the government's looking after it. Somebody's looking after it. And it's, this is the problem with a lot of issues that we're dealing with is that it's, you know, just a lot of people don't want to know. It's a friend of mine calls it the right not to know. Uh, the United Nations established that water would be a human right. But I think that is one of the, the philosophical leaps that we as a society need to take yeah. to really, really ingrain that in our collective psyche. And some places are. I mean, some, since the United Nations recognized the human rights to water and sanitation, a number of countries have adopted their or changed their constitution to recognize the human rights to water and have set out a plan, which every country is supposed to do, by the way. Of course, Harbor government's not doing, but they're supposed to. Um, so, the, so there is real movement taking place. Their governments aren't moving. They're presenting them to the government, saying, you need to do this. Here's what has to happen in our country to fulfill the human right to water and sanitation. Um, here's the obligations for, for us here in Canada. It's really on First Nations communities. That's where the attention has to go here. Other places, it's much more widespread, it's peri-urban slums and so on. You know, people said, oh, okay, the human right to water and sanitation, you're saying everything will be better the next day. Well, of course not, especially if we're also running out of water at the same time we're trying to do this. But, um, you know, is it a step forward? Is it a statement of principle and belief that we have collectively in the world? And then what do we do? How do we start to make that real? Well, talk me through the, the final... Uh, the final point that you make in Blue Future is that we need to make human laws compatible with nature's laws. Talk me through that argument. Well, basically, all in Western society, water is a property, and and the law, the way the law is interpreted, is is that it's a property right. And so, for instance, in with a um, uh, BP in the Gulf of Mexico, the only people who could sue for compensation were people who could prove that their livelihood had been damaged. Now, you know, forget the fact that the entire ecosystem has been damaged. Nobody can sue for that, and the Gulf can't sue for that. So the concept around the rights of water is that we start, or the rights of nature, or earth rights, there are different, um, different terms for it, is that we, we recognize that water and nature exist outside of their uh, service to us. Yes, it's a big step to see water as a public trust and that it belongs to all, or, you know, it is equally all of ours. But then you have to say it really doesn't belong to us. It really belongs to itself. It serves its own its own reality. We need to leave water in the ground. We leave to we need to leave water where nature put it, because it's serving in an incredibly important function where it is, um, and that is uh, all the ecosystem, all the species that depend on it. The you know future ecosystems, future generations depend on keeping those systems as intact as possible, and so it's recognizing that our laws <clears throat> of take 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 and convert everything to a, you know, to a commodity and seeing a river and seeing, instead of seeing a flowing river that's what all, all that it's doing for our, our health and for the environment and keeping us all alive, we see hydroelectricity. So it's, it's turning your head around and asking the question, what is, what is water? I imagine that would be quite hard to do, though, to, to take water out of the law because it's so deeply entrenched in, as you said, uh, sort of how we, how we even think about capitalism in general. Well, I have used to be much more sophisticated, if you will, when I would speak in the western states, California, uh, 
uh, the, the states that are just Colorado that are in such crisis now. And I'd say, I know your laws are complicated, and there was always the first in time, first in right. And, you know, so you, you've got the, all these legal problems, and now I'm not like that anymore. You know what I say? You've got to, those laws were meant for a time when you thought there was unlimited water, and there were only a few settlers here, and you wanted to populate the prairies. For God's sake, that time is gone. You've got to wipe out those laws and start again. And they should do what Vermont has done and, and name their water, surface and, and groundwater, to be a public trust. And very clearly say it belongs to the people, it belongs to the ecosystem, it belongs they even going to give priority in, in times of, of shortage to local sustainable food production over food production for export. I mean, they're very, very clear that this water must be protected as a public trust for all time. I, as I say, I used to be sort of more understanding of all the complications. I don't think it's like that anymore. I think we don't have time. We need some very, very clear principles. Water is a human right. Water is a public trust. Water has rights and must be protected. Water can teach us how to live together. Water can become nature's gift to us to, to teach us how to live differently, to, to not be a source of conflict, but rather a source of finding ways to deal with other problems because we have this big one. You know, maybe my father hated your father because whatever, but we're all going to not be able to live on this water system if, if we don't fix it together. And I, I've got examples where communities have come together across great divides to protect the, the local water. Self-preservation, but preservation of my neighbor. And so I, you know, in the end, I'm actually quite hopeful. I, I consider water to be a, a moral imperative, or hope to be a moral imperative, and water can be a tool um, to help us get there. I have one more question, um, and it kind of, I guess it relates to self-preservation, because I think when it comes to water today, one of the major things that negatively impacts water management is that little actions uh, compounded sort of have larger consequences because water is so connected. But then it works the other way. Uh, small actions by people in aggregate can have a tremendously positive impact so I guess my question is, what can I do in my own life to make a difference to water sustainability in the future? Well, consciousness, <clears throat> just seeing water, remembering that water doesn't just come out of the tap. I think one of the biggest first problems was taps, you know. So we were just separated from this body of water that you had to use to go to and get and pull over and heat up and touch. And, you you know, now we have all these taps in our homes, and so we, we just think it comes from somewhere else. So just, you know, reestablish or establish a relationship to water and think about it. Don't buy bottled water. <clears throat> you don't need it. I mean, I know there are parts of the world that don't have clean public water, but that's not true here. But then I'd say take it a step further and get involved in the politics of water. You know, if your municipality is looking at privatization, jump in and get involved. Don't be benign. Don't sit back. It's really important that we be part of something. That was Tara Informer Matt Hergy speaking with Maud Barlow in a piece from our archives. To bring things up to date, Maud Barlow hasn't stopped. In 2016, she released a book called Boiling Point, which is about government neglect, corporate abuse, and Canada's water crisis. And now, dear listeners, it's unfortunately time to say goodbye. If you can't wait to hear more stories like this, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma. 
Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Sophia Osborne, Dylan Hall, Hannah Cunningham, and Sydney Carbonic. I've been your host, Amanda Rooney, and I'll catch you next week on Terra Informa.